Job chapter 35, verses 1 through 16. Hear, for this is the word of the Lord. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say, It is my right before God, that you ask, What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. And now because his anger does not punish and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There have been many false teachings that have been taught in the church throughout the centuries. And they are still very popular in the church even today. There are versions of these false teachings all across denominations. Uh, There is legalism, which teaches that your salvation is based on what you do. That is, in order to be saved, you must keep the law or meet some kind of condition. Uh, There is the prosperity gospel, which teaches that if you have faith in God, then nothing but good will come to you. Success, health, and wealth. Then there is the kissing cousin of the prosperity gospel, which is the therapeutic gospel, which uses the gospel as just a solution to all your personal problems. That if you believe in Jesus, all your problems, anxiety, depression, mental illness, relationship problems, marital problems, financial problems, these will all just go away with some basic steps that Jesus taught us. He has a word for each of these problems. We use the Bible as just a manual to navigate through life. Then there is the second cousin to the prosperity and therapeutic gospel, which is the social gospel. Uh, This is what we know as Liberation theology, used by both liberals and conservatives, by the way, which uses the gospel as a solution to societal and cultural problems. They teach that Jesus came to fight the class struggle, or the race struggle, or the national struggle. That sounds like what the Jews expected of Jesus until they found out That was not what he came for, 
and they crucified him. Although these false teachings are all different, they all have some things in common. First, they all try to bring God down to our level. They try to humanize God. They have no reverence nor any knowledge of his nature nor his character. Second, these false teachings are all worldly. They're man-centered. In fact, God seems to be missing. God is not a thought for them at all. It is not about God nor pleasing God, but it is first and foremost about themselves. It is all about man and what man can do, what man can accomplish as if history is all about man. As if God's chief end is to glorify man and enjoy him forever. They're trying to deify man. So in all of these systems, man is the most important object and man is laying out the terms for God to follow rather than the other way around. Although Job started off good when he worshipped and served God because he was God, but as time went on, as Job suffered, based on some of what he has said, it seems as if he has drifted. It sounds like he may have bought into some of these lies and started worshipping God only for what he could get from him, maybe a blessing. And this is what Elihu is trying to correct. See, it is so easy for the Christian to drift at times. We can fall for some pretty bad teachings at times. Uh, For instance, since we live in a meritocracy, uh, that is a system based on merits, which means that if you work hard, you'll get a good reward, a better job, better pay, better living conditions. We can sometimes confuse that with our relationship to God. That God will bless me if I'm good or curse me if I'm bad. Sometimes we treat God like Santa Claus. If I'm good, I'll be on the nice list. And I can expect to get the gift I always wanted. And if I'm bad, I'll be on the naughty list. And I can only expect some coal in my stockings this year. Back in chapters 29 and 30, Job expressed his longing to go back to when he was dignified and respected. Uh, Then he laments his present condition because he was a man of justice and compassion, and he expected the same in return from God. But according to what he has gone through, that is not what he received from God. So he accused God of being unjust. He accused God of wrong. If we were to summarize all of what Job has said against God, it reminds me of Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, which says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? And this is what set Elihu off. This is what led Elihu to turn his attention to Job and ask this. Do you think this to be just? Do you say, it is my right before God that you ask 
What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? He is saying that Job is saying, there's no point in being good if I'm getting nothing out of it. I should have just been on the naughty list. So Elihu issues a loving yet stern rebuke. In our world today, if we correct someone, it is often viewed as being unloving. Especially if that person is in a low place and they have gone through a lot of suffering. People think that if you correct someone who is going through suffering, then you're being unloving. But that is not what Elihu does here. Correction is a form of love. You want to correct this person so they don't end up in harm's way. Harm's way for Job would be to fall under the judgment of God. He has his ideas about God mistaken and he needed to be corrected. He says, I will answer you and your friends with you. I hope you're all listening. So if we were to summarize Elihu's response to Job by answering Job's question with a question, his question was, what's the point of being good if all I get in return is suffering? Uh, Elihu would ask Job, do you even know who God is? And do you even have faith in God? So first, after following Job's reasoning all this time, Elihu would ask, do you even know God? Do you know his nature and his character? If you did, you wouldn't be saying what you have been saying about God. This is why I would emphasize that the Christian life is about getting to know God. Especially how he has revealed himself in his word. And where he stands in relation to his creatures. We're not expected to know everything about God. and No one can know everything about God. But out of what we do know about God, do we know him rightly? Because there is always the danger of getting God wrong and ending up in a very bad place. So Elihu says, look up. Look at the heavens and see. Look at the clouds. They are far above you. Do they change if you sin or not? No. They keep floating on as they've always had. And so if the clouds don't change if you sin, what do you accomplish against God if you sin? He is higher and greater than the clouds. You think you can hurt him? You think you can move him off his throne? And if you are righteous, what do you give to God? Or what does he receive from your hand? Can you make God more righteous with your righteousness? Does he need you to be righteous? Or are you trying to butter him up with your righteousness? Reminds me of when Paul said of God, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Do you think God owes you something, Job? Do you think you're doing him a favor when you are righteous? What you do or don't do only affects other humans like yourself, not God. Now, he is not at all saying that God doesn't care how humans live. Here, he is not speaking of God's holiness. But he is speaking of God's impassibility, which means he cannot suffer pain. He is speaking about God's immutability, which means that God cannot change. 
No matter what man does, God remains God. There is nothing that man can do to change God. And God doesn't owe us anything for what we have done. It is not, if I do good, I will be blessed. We hear this often in the prosperity and therapeutic gospels. And we can't say to God, look at all the good I've done in my life. You owe me. Even if we were to obey every command of God, Jesus told us what we are to say. And we are to say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. But even that is highly unlikely because I can guarantee if we were to take a microscope and analyze all that we have done in our lives, the bad will outweigh the good. And this is why the the blessing of eternal life is a free gift. It is by God's grace. We can't earn it. See, what Job was missing in his theology was the transcendence of God. Uh, Transcendence is described in our Confession of Faith, chapter 7, section 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him. Even if we were sinless, we would have no fruition of God as our blessedness and reward but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has pleased to express by way of covenant. I I try not to make too many book recommendations from the pulpit, uh, but if there is one book I would commend to your reading is the small book entitled God Transcendent by J. Gresham Machen. It is a collection of easy-to-read sermons that he preached during his time and his battles against liberalism. Because liberalism lost this teaching that God is transcendent. He is above and beyond all of his creation. Liberal theologians were trying to make God relatable to us by bringing his nature and character down to our level. They tried to change God to make him more suitable to us. They were making him easy to figure out and making man the end all be all. But Elihu says, God is far above and beyond mortals. As Paul says, he alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And here... Elihu is trying to convince Job that he needs to give up fighting against this transcendent God and submit to him. This summarizes all of humanity. Every person you know or have come across in your life who has not believed in God, they are in a fight against God, a fight they will never win. And all of God's ambassadors throughout the centuries have been sent with one simple message to all people. It is time to give up the fight. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will have all that you need because you will have 
God himself as your blessedness and your reward. And that is the point here. We are to love and serve God not only for what he does for us, but because of who he is as God. He is to be our portion forever. He is to be our greatest possession. (laughs) Secondly, if we were to summarize what else Elihu said to Job in a question, he would ask him, do you have faith in God? Because there are many people all around the world who are oppressed by all sorts of trials, whether it is disease, persecution at the hands of their enemies, difficult life circumstances, and they cry out to God for help because they know that God is mighty and strong. But according to Elihu, no one says, where is God my maker? This question is not just about seeking God, but it is about seeking God because he is God, not for what he can do for us. How many of us cry out to God? How many people in the world cry out to God, ask him for help? But the question is, do they have faith in God and seek him out for who he is? He is saying that some people only seek God when they need help. Some only seek God for a blessing. How many churches out there promote worship as come and get your blessing today? As if it's a shopping mall that has everything you may need. As if we need a reason other than God himself to come to church. Now this is what leads us to leave church saying to ourselves, I didn't get much out of it today. You just met with God. What else are you looking for? More times than not, the problem is not with the church, but the problem is with the person complaining. There are many reasons why people come to church, in some cases, rightly so, But if God is not the number one reason why you come to church, you are coming for the wrong reasons. You come to church to meet with God through his word, his sacraments, and prayer, and to worship him through these means, not for the activities, not for the programs, not even for the fellowship. All of this other stuff that we do is good, but it flows out of our intimate relationship in a covenant with the triune God. If it's not coming out of that, then we're coming for the wrong reasons. Because the Lord does bless us, doesn't he? Even when we don't acknowledge it. He says he gives us songs in the night which is a unique phrase found in the Old Testament about God giving us songs through the moon and the stars that reminds us that his blessing of life and light will arrive once again in the morning. He gives us more light or more knowledge than his creatures. He teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. But what Elihu wants to make clear here is that he doesn't answer everyone's cry 
Not all who cry out to God are crying out by faith. Some cry out only when they're going through hardship, but they have no faith in God. Even those who have been oppressed because of the pride of evil men, he does not answer them. Why? How often do we hear or do we even say to ourselves, why doesn't God do something about my situation? I've been praying for this for years. Well, one reason could be, I'm not saying it is, but it could be that you're crying out to him from an unbelieving heart. The problem that Elihu is seeking to identify in Job is that he seeks him only to get what he wants from him. As James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's an empty cry. God does not answer nor regard an empty cry. Uh, The word for empty here can also be translated as deceitful. It is a deceitful cry. It's not a cry from a place of faith in God. It is a cry that is only seeking for results. It's only seeking to benefit, number one, and not for the glory of God. It is to treat God as a bellboy. It is to deal with God deceptively as if he cannot see what's in our hearts. As if he cannot see that we don't really have faith in him. But I would add, even if we do cry out and pray to God by faith, he may still give us an answer to our prayer that we might not like. We can consider an example from a man of faith that we know as Paul. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what this thorn was. It could have been an illness. We know he suffered from many physical problems. But whatever the problem was, he pleaded with the Lord that it should be removed from him. And what was the Lord's response? He said, no. Instead, the Lord responded, my grace is is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So if we cry out to God by faith, we'll know it is by faith because we will accept whatever the response is that he decides to give us in the right time that he wants to give us. We wouldn't get so frustrated with God's timing. But how often... Do we get frustrated with this timing? And if God doesn't answer an empty cry, a cry that has no faith in him, how much less if Job says things about God that misrepresents him? He will receive no answer from God. Job said he does not see him. Although he has laid his case before him and he has been waiting for him, but God never shows up, according to Job. So he concludes that there is no justice with God and his anger does not punish the wicked. He is saying he does not take much note of sin and transgression. Today in our culture and in our world, don't we say this often? What is God going to do about all this? Is he not taking note of transgression? But is this true of God? Is God not holy? Is this the God of our Bibles? 
Is this the God who we know does acknowledge sin and transgression? And this is displayed in the fact that he laid all of our transgressions on his most beloved son, Jesus Christ. He does take note. He does take note of transgression. So Elihu's final declaration is that Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. He doesn't know God, as in he doesn't know God's nature and character rightly. So he is not crying out to God by faith, knowing that God is good and just and that he will answer Job's cry in his own timing by his own wisdom. Beloved, this is why the knowledge of God is so important to the Christian and his walk. Jesus said that eternal life is to know God and his son, Jesus Christ. Some will say that faith is blind. You don't need to know God, just believe. That is usually the road to destroying someone's faith. But knowledge is part of the essence of faith. See, faith is made up of three components. Knowledge, assent, which means you nod your head in agreement to that knowledge, and trust. In Job's frustration with God, he was not exercising faith. He should have known that God is far above all of his creation. He does not and cannot change. Yet this same God does condescend to his creatures. He condescends to man and makes a covenant with man. And he is faithful to that covenant. There is evidence back in chapter 1 that Job was in covenant with God as he offered sacrifices to him. And later, God will condescend once again to Job in chapter 38. And later, in redemptive history, God will condescend and take the form of a servant and take away our sins on a cross. When has God failed his people? We have definitely failed him time and time again. But when has God failed us? Your existence right now, sitting in these pews, is evidence that we serve a good God. Even to those who are outside of the covenant of grace, that is the unbelieving world, all they need to do is look around and see the way God has ordered all things. They'd know that there is a good creator behind it all. But because of their sin, they suppress that truth. We suppress that truth in our own frustration with our own circumstances. Why hasn't God answered my prayers? Why are my children the way they are? Why is my household struggling while others are not? Why do I keep running into one challenge after another? In the great hall of faith we find in Hebrews 11, the author makes clear that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Not just seek for a solution to our problems, not just seek him for all the answers, but he rewards those who seek him. 
because he wants us to want him as our greater portion. He wants us to want him, not just what he could give us. And he gives us a lot of gifts. But those gifts ought to draw our minds back to him. It is his way to say, hey, remember me? Come to me. Walk with me. Trust in me. I'll give you everything you need in the time you need it. But how? How do we come to him? How do we come to know him? Jesus said this, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? Because he has earned our rest by his work on the cross. He has restored our relationship with God. So I implore all of you to come to Jesus, know Jesus, have faith in Jesus, and you'll soon find out how faithful Jesus truly is. Amen.